Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Close Up on Casting, the Academy Museum podcast's second season. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. This season, we're continuing our deep dive into the stories of cinema told in the museum's galleries by focusing in on a major discipline, one of the most crucial but misunderstood jobs in filmmaking, casting. As someone growing up watching classic films on television, I knew a lot about the stars, but I have to admit I did not know that much about how those stars ended up in those roles. And even as a film historian, I didn't learn or teach very much about the art of casting. So in this season, we're going to be looking at casting as inspired by the performance gallery at the Academy Museum. Every season, this podcast is inspired by one of the Academy Museum's galleries. Last season, we focused on our Academy Awards History Gallery. And for season two, we're taking a deep dive into our performance gallery. It's where we highlight the work of actors and casting directors. When the Academy Museum opened, I was struck by how drawn people were to the performance gallery. It's where we feature audition tapes and Polaroids of actors very early in their careers. And it was really interesting to watch visitors imagine different possibilities for some of their favorite films. There's an essential casting story behind every Oscar winner, and we'll be shedding light on the history of this profession. We'll be working our way from the classic Hollywood studio era to today. And with every film and story, we'll be asking, who gets the part? How does that choice get made? And what does it mean for a film, for an actor, and for audiences? You'll hear from directors, Academy Museum curators, film historians, producers, and, of course, casting directors. For this first episode, we're starting in the year 1940 with the film Rebecca. We'll dive into Rebecca's casting history and how life on set for its star imitated art. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. Why, it's Max de Winter. How do you do? Rebecca is a film directed by Alfred Hitchcock and produced by David Selznick. The film won Academy Awards for Outstanding Production, the category now known as Best Picture, and for Cinematography. And it was nominated for nine others, including Best Screenplay, Best Actress, and Best Director. The behind-the-scenes story of Rebecca illustrates how the casting process worked in Hollywood during the classic film era. At this time, roughly between the 1920s and the 1950s, American film culture was dominated by the studio system, a handful of companies that churned out feature films, crafted star personas, and controlled film distribution and exhibition. It's crucial to note that there were no casting directors under the studio system. Casting director wasn't a job yet. Under the studio system, directors and producers were men who possessed tremendous power, with particularly limiting consequences for women and their careers. The studio system established much of our current understanding of how films are made, including how they are cast. So we're starting this season by speaking with Academy Museum Associate Curator Dara Jaffe to talk about that key period in Hollywood filmmaking. 
under the studio system, actors were signed to to studios. They were under contract, and they did not have much power over what they were cast in. They were basically assigned roles that the studio heads or studio machines saw fit. They were generally thought of as typecast. You had your femme fatales and your girl next doors and your heavies and your heroes, your character actors. And there was not as much focus on the interior truth of the character. Actors were kind of commodities that could be slotted in into whatever roles they were seen as. Directors and producers chose actors who were under contract at the studio where they were working. And occasionally, they would try to get actors on loan from other studios. They would select actors from an annual bulletin called the Academy Players Directory. The directory looks like a thick yearbook. As you flip through hundreds of pages of faces, you find actors' names, headshots, and the name of their representation or the studio where they were under contract. A new issue would come out a few times a year, and issues ran between the years of 1937 all the way up to 2006. Countless pages of countless faces. First, we have on display the original issue of the Academy Players Directory. It basically acts as a Facebook or a catalog of all of the different actors. So producers or directors or writers or anyone at the studio could look through this book as they were thinking of casting a film. So actors were under contract at studios and the roles they could play were primarily determined by what physical type they matched what image was being constructed by the studios for them, and by the parameters of a director or producer's imagination. The process was not attuned to the development of an actor's craft or to giving directors a range of potentially unexpected options. During the casting process for the movie Rebecca, there were four actresses up for the lead role. Vivian Lee, Anne Baxter, Margaret Sullivan, and Joan Fontaine. The men leading the production all had different preferences, and the casting battle got heated. We'll hear some of Hitchcock's thoughts on the actresses right after this. The Academy Museum has on display a series of contentious letters and memos between Selznick, the producer, and Hitchcock, the director. Their casting process on Rebecca, that is, fighting and trying to pull rank on each other, is a classic example of how casting worked before casting directors were involved. A selection of memos from Mr. Hitchcock to Mr. Selznick. Date, July 19, 1939. Subject. Girl for Rebecca. Alicia Rett, homely, a bit too old, but reading to come. Faye Helm, her reading was quite good, but I don't think she looks attractive in person at all. Slightly homely. Miriam Patty, too much Dresden China. She should play the part of the Cupid that is broken. She's so frail. Betty Campbell, too ordinary, too chocolate box. Joan Fontaine, tested, possibility but it has to show a fair amount of nervousness in order to get any effect. Here's Dara again. And ultimately, in this case, 
David O. Selznick pulled the trump card on Hitchcock and cast his favorite for the role, who was Joan Fontaine. I feel so uncomfortable. I, I try my best every day, but it's very difficult with people looking me up and down as if I were a prize cow. Well, what does it matter if they do? You must remember that life at Mandalay is the only thing that interests anybody down here. What a slap in the eye must have been to them then. The way Fontaine was cast ended up making her perfect for the role. She was playing the unnamed protagonist who marries a fabulously wealthy and mysterious man, and she's constantly overshadowed by the specter of his late first wife. suggested I wear it. Why do you hate me? What have I done to you that you should ever hate me so? You tried to take her place. You let him marry you. You thought you could be Mrs. DeWinter, live in her house, walk in her steps, take the things that were hers, but she's too strong for you. On set, life mirrored the plot of the film. Laurence Olivier had been cast as the male lead, Maxim de Winter. At the time, he was married to Vivian Lee, who was eager to play the unnamed female lead. When Fontaine secured the role instead, Olivier did not warm up to her, notably once calling her loathsome. Two of the three most powerful men on the set vocally didn't want Fontaine there. Despite that, Fontaine's performance earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. In our conversation with feminist film scholar Patricia White, we'll dive deeper into Rebecca. Changes to the plot for moral reasons, when it meant to cast Joan Fontaine, and casting women in the studio system. I found in Selznick's papers, there was also a slip of paper with a letter that just said, Mr. Selznick, I'll paraphrase, I thought you were a great film artist, but how could you have cast such a nincompoop as Joan Fontaine? (laughs) My conversation with Patricia White after the break. Hi, I'm Patricia White, and I teach film studies at Swarthmore College, and I wrote a book on Rebecca for the British Film Institute's Classics series. So you wrote the book on Rebecca in 2021, and maybe we could start off by talking about what draws you to this film. What motivated you to write the book? Thank you. I love this film, and I've loved it since I saw it on television in you know, high school. So it was always, it was my mother's favorite and it was my favorite. And then I was really happy to find it as a study object later when I became a professor. So the film is based on a book, a novel. Daphne du Maurier's novel is written in the first person from the perspective of a young woman who has very little experience of life and very little prospects. She's the companion to a very crass American woman who's vacationing in Monte Carlo. And she becomes enamored of a mysterious, dark stranger played in the movie by Laurence Olivier. For some reason, he takes an interest in her and she finds out that his former wife, very beautiful, had died the year before. And she is unexpectedly asked to come home and be the mistress of Manderley, this mysterious stranger's English countryside home, in place of Rebecca, the dead wife. This sort of life is new to me, and I do want to make a success of it and make Mr. DeWinter happy, so I know I can leave all the household arrangements to you. Very well. 
I hope I shall do everything to your satisfaction, madam. I've managed the house since Mrs. De Winter's death, and Mr. De Winter has never complained. So when she arrives there, she's intimidated by everything, the furniture, the service, how many utensils are at the table. But she creeps around, her curiosity gets the better of her, and she explores all the nooks and crannies of this house and becomes more and more obsessed with the dead woman, Rebecca. Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca is written in the first person, and we don't really know the name of this character. We don't really know what she looks like. The whole thing is through her eyes. So the idea of being the character whose name is only I in the book is, I think, very readily available to readers. And there were a lot of readers. If you haven't seen the film or read the book, you should know that the titular Rebecca is never physically present in the story. We never see her on screen, but her presence looms over the characters. Her room is left untouched. Her belongings are still carefully preserved through the enormous estate. Joan Fontaine's character is always, explicitly or not, being compared to her. The novel was sold to Hitchcock and Selznick while it was still in galleys. And it was because of the women on both of their staffs that they were persuaded that this was going to be really hot property. And the book just took off, both in England, where, you know, it kind of makes sense that people have this class fantasy of this estate, Manderley, and in the U.S., where there is this pretension to, you know, having this aristocratic past. The speculation about who would be cast in this role was very, very fierce. And it was a really good way to drum up interest in the film. The book really pre-sold the film in so many ways. I found in Selznick's papers, there was also a slip of paper with a letter that just said, Mr. Selznick, I'll paraphrase, I thought you were a great film artist, but how could you have cast such a nincompoop as Joan Fontaine? <laughs> so there was like serious anger. So Joan Fontaine was cast as the unnamed lead, usually referred to as, quote, the second Mrs. De Winter. At the time, Joan Fontaine had appeared in very few films and had not made a very good impression on anyone. She was the younger sister of Olivia de Havilland, who had already established herself. And she was very pretty. And she was born to British parents, although she was American. So she had the ability to play English. But it was really not until a week before they started filming that she cinched the role. Some accounts say that producer David O. Selznick wanted her all along, but it really seems from the archive and the correspondence that he was genuinely undecided and was having more and more screen tests shipped to him on film from London and New York right up until a week before the film was going into production. Here's a clip from one of Joan Fontaine's screen tests. Oh, uh, darling, I, I was going to tell you, but I, I didn't get the chance... I wrote the Johnny Cupid. Cupid? Well, why didn't you take the one? Well, I wanted to. I, I started to, but I, I didn't get the chance. Well, it doesn't matter that you have to. Ultimately, she did get the role. She had screen tested for it numerous times. And Hitchcock really devoted himself to rehearsing her. So at the Academy Museum's performance gallery, we have some of the auditions, the footage of auditions of other actresses for this role. 
And Laurence Olivier famously wanted Vivian Lee to play opposite him in this film. And this is a really interesting case where the director and the producer had different first choices for the lead role. So I wonder if you could say anything more about the tensions uh, around the casting process for Rebecca. I think the tensions really go to the film itself because it was Hitchcock's first film in America and it was a David O. Selznick film and David O. Selznick liked to control everything. He had just done this incredible casting public spectacle around the film Gone with the Wind and he had discovered Vivian Lee for that role. So he was very careful not to offend her and had her test for the role and he also wanted to make Laurence Olivier happy, but she's not a meek and gauche new bride. Folks thought that she would be, you know, a really quite inappropriate for this shy and receding role. Her notoriety would not, I don't think, follow into this role. So Hitchcock was not interested in that. And although Joan Fontaine's lovely and not nearly as plain as this role sort of pretends to be, there's something about her timidity and her youth and sort of lack of confidence that makes her excruciatingly identifiable with by viewers. A lot of actresses wanted it, but I think Joan Fontaine's performance is really remarkable. And although she didn't win the Oscar for it, she did win one the next year for essentially repeating this role in another Hitchcock film, Suspicion. And I say essentially repeating it because it's really a gothic role where she's a meek, you know, new bride who's exploring the secrets of her new husband and his ancestral home. So this season of our podcast is focused on casting and we're looking at the evolution of the role of the casting director. So, you know, right now we're starting in 1940. This is before the role of the casting director existed. So could you just tell us a little bit more about how the casting process worked during this period in the classical Hollywood era? Casting was really done by the studio heads in some ways because they contracted their actors and actresses for usually seven-year contracts and they were told what they should appear in. What was interesting about Rebecca and about David O. Selznick as a producer is that he had left MGM and started his own studio. So he had fewer stars under contract when he began. And I think he turned that into, you know, what we now are familiar with as the drama of casting a very coveted role, especially when it's an adaptation of a popular novel. So he did that with the heroine of Gone with the Wind and repeated it again for Rebecca which was a very different kind of role. So there was wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. He would write to other studio heads and say, can I have these supporting players? Then you can have my leading man. He wanted Ronald Coleman for the role of Maxim de Winter because he was under contract, but also would have been quite affecting in that role. He turned it down because it was too much of a women's picture. And also because if you read the book, it's, perfectly clear that Maxim de Winter killed Rebecca. The Hayes Code made the film version tone that down a little bit, but there was still some concern about a leading man being cast as a murderer, essentially. And Laurence Olivier, I think, 
somewhat disdained acting in general in Hollywood, but it made for a perfect kind of arrogance as Maxim de Winter. And I think it worked out well that he was borrowed for the role. But that's also why when Olivier was cast, he really wanted Vivian Lee, whom he was involved with, to be on set with him. And when Joan Fontaine was cast in this role. He and many of the other actors thought that she didn't have it in her and kind of made the experience of acting for this pretty inexperienced young woman fairly difficult on set. Wow. Echoing the film, right? Exactly. It it, it does seem to have been reflected. You know, the disdain and the harshness really fit into the role. And we're not really sure as viewers what he thinks of, of her or even why he married her. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In the way that you're describing it, it might be surprising to people to think that the director was not really leading the vision for casting in all cases during this period, that it really was in the hands, as you said, of the studio heads, of the, of the producers of the film. And certainly when Hitchcock came to America, he was brought in as a talented director and Selznick knew that he would have to defer to Hitchcock on many creative matters, but he found it hard to do that because he was, Selznick was involved in every part of production. But Hitchcock was very much involved in the casting. They did collaborate over the choices and the casting of the main character was a long and drawn out process. So it was a collaborative casting effort, but very much a place where these two men were jockeying for power and control over this film that was really a woman's story. Hmm. I wonder what kind of agency actors and actresses had during this period. You mentioned that Ronald Coleman turned the role down, but we also know that there were so many cases in which actors couldn't or they would have a really hard time or be told that they were violating their contracts. What was that dynamic like, you know, in in the way that you think about how actors could and could not choose the roles that they played? It was very notoriously part of the culture at Warner Brothers for actors and actresses to be asked to play in parts that didn't conform with their image, that they were wasted in small parts. So both Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland sued Warners in order to be released from their contract to be able to have some autonomy over the films that they made. I think these were some really interesting labor struggles in Hollywood. And, you know, Betty Davis was unsuccessful in her efforts, but Olivia de Havilland was successful in becoming a so-called free agent, right? In protesting the duration of her contract. So I love thinking about Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine and their their connection, right? <laughs> As sisters in, in real life, but also in this industry. In this business, yeah. At the time of this casting, Selznick was quite interested in Olivia de Havilland for the role. And I think he just thought Jack Warner at Warner Brothers wasn't going to let her come over for it. Part of the mythology of that sister relationship that Joan Fontaine ended up getting her Oscar before Olivia de Havilland did, although Olivia de Havilland was the bigger star and more respected actor. Also working for Selznick in Gone with the Wind, literally at that same time. 
Salznick really positioned himself, as I mentioned, as somebody who discovered new talent. And he had just brought Ingrid Bergman from Sweden to play in her first film, Intermezzo. And he was making these three films at the same time. And basically, although they ended up being quite successful, his studio couldn't sustain that level I mean, of production and they shut it down after that. What would have been like for actresses to be working with Alfred Hitchcock or David Oselsnick? Like, what was that experience like for them? You know, in our Me Too era, I think probably both of these men were very unpleasant to work with in terms of how they treated the women that they worked with. But it was an interesting turning point for Hitchcock coming to the U.S., and really being, I think, pushed by Selznick to make this film a psychologically rich portrait of a woman, you know, from her perspective. So Hitchcock was very interested in training his actors, but notoriously treated them like cattle. (laughs) He told them what to do and put them through their paces. But by all accounts on set, he worked very closely with Joan Fontaine and got this, you know, very subtle performance out of an actor that others were sort of disdaining her abilities. It was a very precarious time for women to try to come up in the system with so much consolidated male power around them. Do you think that typecasting worked differently for men and women during this time? Yeah, they were typecast. I think it was a good time for women in the sense that they were reliably cast. They were big box office draws. They had enormous fan bases. And going into World War II, they had often even more starring roles. But it was also a time of limited creative possibility. So I have another question for you, which has to do with the way that the Academy's Players Directory worked for for women and for men. So, you know, the directory has a category of ingenues, for example, and it seems as though there is something that really tracks women's ages in relation to the kinds of roles they could play, whereas for men... There isn't that same kind of categorization, that they wouldn't necessarily age out of certain types of roles at the same pace. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how that kind of classification was working along gender lines. Oh, just the category of an ingenue, you know? There were juvenile leads, I think, for men, but it wasn't nearly as entrapping. And I think it's a really interesting question for this particular film, for Rebecca, because so much of the role depends on the youthfulness and inexperience of this character, almost to the point where it's kind of creepy. Her husband calls her a child and tells her to stop biting her nails. And in some of the casting, there was concern about the youthfulness of certain actors. So Ann Baxter, I think, was only 17. And there was some rightly hesitance about letting her play the ingenue against this older man. But I feel like it was all about your looks and ability to... to Ingenue implies not rocking the boat, really, right? Being very docile and young, and you could age right out of it. We have the screen tests of several actresses on display in our galleries here at the Academy Museum. And I wonder what your thoughts are about why seeing screen tests of folks who did not get the role 
have a kind of fascination. I mean, these are some of the most popular areas of the museum. I was so thrilled when I was finally able to see these other versions of the unnamed heroine of Rebecca. To just really imagine how different a film would be if it were cast with another star really lets you realize how important actors are, but also how resonant a performer's reputation is from other films in a given role. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so lovely to see you. I must be near you so that no matter what happens, we, we, we won't be separated for a moment. All right, dear. That was film professor Patricia White. Join us next week when we discuss the career and casting of Noble Johnson, the first Black movie star. That is it for this episode of the Academy Museum Podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. Check out our performance gallery to learn more about the history of casting. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Victoria Alejandro. Our other producer is Monica Bushman. Antonia Sarahito is our Senior Producer and Story Editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.